to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. I'm going to read from um, the NIV, um, Luke chapter 18 from verse 1. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Some of the other translations say, always pray and not lose heart. Keep on praying and not lose heart. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? One of the things that's really heavy on my heart for this year is prayer. I want to pray more. I want to pray more. I want to learn to pray more. I want to learn to pray better. I, I want this to be a year in which I grow in my prayer life. And I suspect that if I asked you, most of you would put up your hand and say, I'd also like to pray more. I don't think, there are, there are very few Christians that I've met that are, that are satisfied with their prayer life. In, in a sense of, saying, you know, I, I, I really pray as much as I'd like to, you know. In fact, I pray a little more than I'd like to. I, I've never really met anyone who says that. <laughs> I think all of us want to grow in our prayer lives. Um, <clears throat> but sometimes there are things in our hearts that, that prevent us um, from, from doing that. So this, this parable starts off, and, 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 and there's sort of an editorial introduction in which Jesus says to his disciples, or, or the Luke actually records how Jesus he introduces the parable. And he says, uh, Jesus told this parable. So he gives an editorial introduction to show his disciples that we ought to keep on praying and not give up. So that's the purpose. I mean, right up front he states the purpose. And, um, you know, he, he gives two things there. He says... We ought to keep on praying what we're supposed to do and we should not give up or we should not lose heart. The thing, in other words, what we should do and then the thing that could possibly prevent us from doing what we're supposed to do to keep on praying. Why do we, why do we not keep on praying in any circumstances? Because we lose heart, because we give up. Okay? And this parable very powerfully addresses why we sometimes give up. And, you know, one of the things that, that I noticed was, I mean, this is a, one of those typical Jewish parables where Jesus, it's, it's, so, it's a so-called argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay? So it's, it's a contrast between the unjust judge, 
as one of the characters in the parable, and then a good father. God as a just judge and a good father. So, so the whole argument is that if because of the persistence of this widow, if because of persistence, an unjust, reluctant judge will eventually do the right thing for the wrong reason, how much more will God as a good father quickly do the right thing for the right reason? So can you see how the argument works? It's actually very simple. If an unjust judge will, will say, okay, fine, you know, just you know, because you keep pestering me, eventually I'll do the right thing, you know, even if it's for the wrong reason. How much more, if God, if God is a good God, a good father, will he speedily do the right thing? He's not a reluctant, unjust judge. But I, I don't think the choice of an unjust judge is random or arbitrary. I think Jesus intentionally chose the unjust judge as sort of the antagonist or the, you know, one of the characters in, in, in the parable because, because, and this is very important, because that is how so many people see God. So many people see God, firstly, as a judge primarily. So many people relate to God as judge primarily. So many Christians relate to God as judge primarily. And not only judge, but often as an unjust judge. So many, even Christians sometimes see God as, a, as an unjust judge in their hearts. And it shows in the way that we pray. It shows in the way that we pray. How we relate to God, how we see God, our perception of God will determine our prayer life. And whether we can pray persistently or not. So, you know, in, in religion in general, in, in society in general, you get sort of two kinds of people. You, you get people who are... Um, Actually, you get three kinds of people. Um, but I'm just going to mention the first two now. The, the first kind of people are people who are, let's call it unrighteous, irreligious. People who, who, who don't really care about God or what God thinks, not really pursuing God, not really even trying to please God. Um, people who, you know, are like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, he leaves and he goes off to a far country and he just... Splashes, you know, he just, he just um, enjoys himself and lives wildly, lives a wild life. And, and, and people like that generally see God as a just judge, if they believe in God. Most of the time they don't believe in God. But if they do, if they are aware of God, they see God as a just judge, and they know that if God is a just judge, he's, he's supposed to judge them. You know? And they, they just try and sort of put it out of their minds and you know, you know, numb their thoughts, you know, maybe use some drugs, maybe drink some wine just to, to, to try and get the idea of God out of their heads. Because they know God is a just judge. But the fact that they know God is a just judge, and they relate to God as a just judge, and they know they, they, they need judgment, leads lead them to feel condemned. Then you get a different kind of person who is not irreligious, but religious. But they're not righteous, they're self-righteous. And that's like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And those kind of people are people who are trying to work really hard to earn God's favor. 
Just like the older brother, remember what he said? He said, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you didn't even give me a young goat that I might, you know, party with my friends. Just like the irreligious, they also want, they don't want the relationship with the Father, they don't want a relationship with God, they want what the Father can give. So, so the older brother also, he doesn't want a relationship with the Father, he only wants what the Father can give him. But that kind of person relates to God as an unjust judge. Because I've been doing my part, God. I've been working hard. I've been slaving away. I've been obeying you. You owe me. And you're unjust for not giving me what I ask for every time. So we're the first group seeing God as a just judge. And knowing they deserve judgment leads to a feeling of condemnation. The second group seeing God as an unjust judge thinking they deserve something from God, leads to a feeling of offense. And out of both condemnation and offense, you cannot pray in the way that God intended you to. Can you see that? But there's a third group. And Jesus, through the gospel, presents us with a third option. Not unrighteousness and not self-righteousness, but true righteousness. And we're going to look at that um, a little bit later. Okay, so... um, my three points are are very simple. Uh, I'm going to talk about persistent prayer and firstly the need for persistent prayer. I think it's up on the screen. It should be up there. And the need for persistent prayer, the nature of persistent prayer, and the basis of persistent prayer. So let's let's look at those three things. Firstly, the need for persistent prayer. It's interesting. In his his book, um, The Praying Life, Paul Miller, you can actually go and look on Amazon for the book. You'll, You'll find it there. Pretty good book on prayer. But, but in, in, in the book, he, uh, he says you, you pretty much have two options. If you want a persistent and consistent prayer life, you pretty much have two options of what's going to motivate you to have a consistent prayer life. It's either discipline or it's desperation. <laughs> and he says he recommends desperation. <laughs> he says everyone he knows that has a rich and consistent prayer life, has that prayer life out of a deep sense of dependency on God and sort of a a desperation of knowing I cannot do life by myself. I cannot control my own life. I need God to intervene in my life. And I think he's right. And I think that's exactly what comes out in this parable. Notice that the person coming with the plea, the person coming with a request is a widow. Right? Now, nowadays we don't feel the force of that as strongly as people in that day would have. Because our society, you know, there are, are sort of, you know, social grants. There are, um, you know, women can work. In those days, women couldn't work. I mean, well, that's not, that's wrongly stated. Women could work, but they didn't get paid for their work. Women did work, but they didn't get paid for their work. They worked in the house, you know. And, and they raised the children and they cleaned the house. And, and they worked very hard, but they didn't get paid for it. Unless they worked as a prostitute. That was the only paying profession for women in those days. It, it was a very patriarchal society. And, and women were dependent on men. So a woman typically would grow up and be dependent on a father. Then at a very young age, 13, you know, in a, in a early or, or, you know, up to a late teen years, would get married. Actually, not just get married. She'd be given in marriage. 
And then she'd be dependent on her husband. And then hopefully she'll have children and specifically sons. Because when her husband died, and the life expectancy in those days wasn't always that high, she needed a son who would then take care of her. She'd be dependent on a son. And, 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 and widows who didn't have sons were destitute. They had no one. They had no man in their life that could, could work and earn money for, for, for them. And they were destitute. They were very dependent. They were very vulnerable. They were one of the most vulnerable kinds of people in society. Because they, 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 couldn't, they didn't have any earning power in that society. They were completely dependent. And here, and often what happened in cases like that would be that those widows who were so dependent, even the little bit that they might have inherited or, you know, that would be on their name, you know, because they were so vulnerable, because there was no one to stand up for them in that society, often people would take advantage of them and try and steal the little bit that they did have. And that seems to be the case with this woman. Because it says, give me justice for my adversary. Someone is oppressing me. Someone is trying to take advantage of me in my vulnerable state. And the only, I mean, she clearly doesn't have a man in her life who can stand up for her and who can, who can cover and protect her in this society in which she has very little protection or opportunities. The only recourse she has, the only thing that she can do, and the only person that she can cry out for for justice and some form of protection is this judge, who unfortunately is an unjust judge who fears, neither fears God nor, nor cares about people, very sort of indifferent, cold judge, and a very reluctant judge. You know, he's like, if I ignore her, she'll go away. <laughs> you know? And... I think what Jesus wants us to realize, and this is the point, you need to get this. What Jesus wants us to realize through this parable is, like, is that we are like this widow. Spiritually speaking, we are exactly like this widow. We are vulnerable. We are dependent on him and him alone. If he doesn't come through for us, we have no other recourse. We have no other opportunities. In other words... Persistent prayer is born out of a realization of our deep dependence on God. And, and you know what? In our modern society, with all our comforts, we are pretty much shielded from that realization of our dependence on God. We, we don't realize how dependent we are on God. Right? We don't. We really think that we can take care of ourselves. We really think that we can... We can look after ourselves. The difference is, so, so, so like this, this, this widow, we are vulnerable. And like this widow, we have an adversary, the devil, who's out to get us and to oppress us. But unlike this widow, we are not dependent on an unjust judge, a reluctant judge. We are dependent on a good father who is actually eager to hear us and to answer our prayers. And, and here's the thing. Prayer is acknowledging that I am and always will be totally dependent on God for everything. I'll say that again. Prayer is acknowledging that I am and always will be totally dependent on God for everything. There's nothing in my life, 
in which I'm no area in my life in which I'm not dependent on God. I might not realize that, and if I don't realize it, I will be even more vulnerable. But it is true. I mean, even even in the areas I mean of our competence, right? Doesn't Deuteronomy say that it I the Lord your God um, this is my covenant with you. I, the Lord your God, give you um, the ability to obtain wealth. So even in our abilities, our ability to work and to be competent in certain areas, where do we get that? We got it from God. Where do we get the health to actually live a productive life? We get it from God. Where do we get the sanity of mind to actually make good decisions? We get it from God. Remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar? Remember what happened to him? He was, this, he was the, the ruler of the known world. He was, he was the emperor of the Babylonian Empire, which was one of the greatest empires ever. And when he was proud and said to himself, looking over his kingdom, you know, standing up in his tower and saying, Look, O oh Nebuchadnezzar, what your hand has accomplished for you. God said, Is it? <laughs> Let's see what happens when I withdraw my hand from you. He lost his mind, and for 70 years he lived like an animal. And it says that his hair grew like feathers, you know, of a bird, and his, his, his nails grew like, like the claws of an eagle. And he ate grass like an ox for seven years. And then it says at the end of the seven years he looked up to heaven, and his sanity returned to him. Notice the order there. It doesn't say, say his sanity returned to him and he looked up to heaven. It's the other way around. He first looked up to heaven and then his sanity returned to him. What is the message there? Even your soundness of mind is a gift from God. We don't realize how dependent we are on God. And prayer acknowledges that we are totally dependent on We, we are and always will be totally dependent on God for everything. And that is the starting place of any good prayer life. And that convicts me <laughs> because I don't always realize that. You see, prayer, I, I heard a, a guy, I can't remember his name, famous American pastor, Dev, I think it was Mark Dever. He said, prayer advertises my dependence and God's dependability. <clears throat> I like that. Prayer advertises my dependence and God's dependability. It puts it on display for the world to see. And it's out of that place of dependence. So prayer is our, I, w- I would go so far as to say, prayer is our primary expression, the primary expression of our dependence on God. So if you want to see how dependent you think you are on God, look at your prayer life. Ooh. Right? Then I realize, when I look at my prayer life, I realize I fall short. I don't realize how dependent I am on God. I don't realize because if I did, it would show up more in my prayer life. My prayer life would be more consistent. Okay, so that's the need for persistent prayer. But, 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 but how does such you know, prayer born out of dependence, how does it look? And, and in this parable, I mean, there's a lot more to say um, about it than, than, than we can cover from this parable. But this parable, I believe, shows us four things. Um, firstly, persistent praise 
you know, this kind of prayer born out of dependence is persistent, um, it's resistant, it's insistent, and it's consistent. Okay, so I'll explain what I mean by that. I'm a typical teacher. I like to make things rhyme or alliterate or something. Bear with me. Thank you. Okay. Firstly, it's persistent because it realizes it has no alternative. That widow had no other recourse. She had no other alternative. If she wanted justice, you know, for adversary, she had to get it from this judge. And if we want justice, if we want any kind of real help, the ultimate help in life, we can only get it from God. We have no alternative. We have no other recourse. And therefore, prayer born out of that sense, uh, that, that realization of dependence is persistent. Because you realize, I have no other options. I can only go to God. That's the only place I can go. That's the only place I can get the kind of help that I really need. So if, we're, uh, if we are not only dependent, but we realize how dependent we are, we have no al- alternative but to persist. And we see this in the parable. In verse 1, it says, uh, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray. Some other translations say, keep on praying and not give up or not lose heart. Verse 3 says, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice for my adversary. Kept coming. Can you see the persistence? Can you see the persistence that is born out of her dependence? And a realization of our dependence. There's a persistence in prayer. And if we realize, and that's the trick, we must not only be dependent, because we are dependent, whether we realize it or not, but we must realize how deeply dependent we are on God. And out of that will grow a persistence in prayer. If we think, if we convince ourselves that we actually have other options and other ways of being helped, then we're not going to be persistent in prayer. Who, who have you sensed that that is true in your life? Hmm? I think all of us, all of us can sense that. So, firstly, um, this kind of prayer born out of dependence is, is persistent. Secondly, it's resistant. Now, what, what I mean by that is it's resistant to self-centered independence. Okay? It's resistant to our self-centered independence, which is something we all tend towards. We tend to want to be autonomous, especially in our culture. Especially in our culture. I mean, our culture is just totally leavened with humanism. You know what humanism is? Humanism is, is taking man, humans, and putting them at the center of life. Making humanity God. Humanism is the proclaimed autonomy of man from any higher power and the resistance of any higher power that would try and impose itself uh, and overwrite that autonomy of man. That's why in humanism, man decides what's right and wrong. And that's why you have human rights. Interesting that you don't have human responsibilities, but yeah, you have human rights. You know? and, and just that kind of humanistic thinking, I, I mean, we, we don't realize how prevalent and pervasive it is in our society. I mean, listen to SAFM and radio stations like that. I mean, if they want to say someone is a good person, they'll say he's humane. If they want to say that um, 
someone is being cruel, they'll say he's being inhumane. If they, if they want to say um, that someone is to be commended, they'll say he's a great humanitarian. <laughs> if they want to complain about something, they'll say human rights are being violated. Can you see how humanity is placed? And I mean, that, that is just one example. In our legal system, in, in, in you know, our, our public discourse, you know, political discourse, everything is run under the rules and within the context of humanistic thinking. Isn't that so? And all of that pushes us towards self-centered independence because that's inherently what humanism is. So we tend towards that, whether we were aware of it or not, as a culture especially. I mean, human nature tends towards that, just naturally, fallen human nature. But we have added to that fallen human nature our cultural pressure as well that drives us towards that. So, so we, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we'd say we're in great danger of this self-centered independence. Um, notice that this widow doesn't just ask for anything. It, it says in, 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 in Luke 18 verse 3, she says, give me justice for my adversary. So when you come to God in prayer, you cannot just ask for anything you want. You've got to ask for the right things. God's not just going to answer any prayer. You know? um, he's, going to ask, he's going to answer our prayers if we ask for the right stuff. I just want to read you actually a, a portion that's, that says this really nicely. Um, just in, in a, a bit more fully. And this is in James chapter 4. Many of you will know this, this passage. James chapter 4 from verse 1 to 3. You can maybe just make a note of it if you're going to read it at home. It says, <clears throat> What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Can you see that self-centered independence there, right at the heart of it? And James saying that, that even our very desires, what we ask for, our motives drive us towards that self-centered independence from God. We do not have because we do not ask. And even when we do ask, we tend to ask for the wrong things and with the wrong motives so that we may spend it on our pleasures. Selfishness. Can you see that? And true dependent prayer that is dependent on God resists. It's resistant to that, those desires that we know are in us. And, and, and being resistant starts with acknowledging that those, those wrong desires are there and then dealing with them. So, you know, the reality is not everything we want is right. Not everything we desire is right. And, and I just feel I need to mention this because the Holy Spirit wants someone here to hear this. I mean, our desires, you can see it like the instrumentation of a, of a plane. But what if your instrumentation is broken? in a plane. And you navigate by that instrumentation. You're going to crash. And, and, and we don't realize that, that our desires are faulty instruments. And if we trust them fully, we're going to crash. Our life's going to crash. So we, we, we cannot fully trust our desires. It's wise not to. 
So um, we mustn't just uh, be dependent in asking, but we must also uh, be dependent in what we ask for. This woman asked for justice. In other words, when, you, when I ask for justice, I'm asking not for what I want, I'm actually asking for what God wants. Because God is a just God and He wants justice. Okay? So even in my desires, I must become dependent on God and say, God, work your desires in me. So that when I ask, I ask what you want. So even in my desires, I'm dependent um, on you. Uh, one of my favorite sayings and, and one of the things that really just wipes away so many of the misconceptions about prayer and frustrations in prayer, uh, you know, away for me, is, is something that, that Dr. Tim Keller says. He says, God will always either give you what you ask for in prayer or what you would have asked for if you knew what he knows. You see that? God's, the point is God's not always going to give you what you ask for in prayer. He loves you too much to do that for you, to you. He loves you too much. So God will either give you what you ask for in prayer, if you ask for justice, if you ask according to His will, or He'll give you what you would have asked for if you knew what He knows. Because the reality is we don't know. And sometimes we ask for the wrong stuff because we don't know what He knows. And we don't know how He's using... Maybe we ask, Lord, get me out of this difficult situation. And God said, no, 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 hang on. You need that difficult situation. If you want to grow in your character and become more Christ-like, you need that difficult situation. But Lord, there's so much pressure. You need that pressure. I'm using that pressure to squeeze you like a lemon so you can see there's lemon juice coming out. <gasps> Where did that come from? Oh, it's the pressure. You know, it's the pressure that did that to me. No, no, no. The pressure didn't put anything in you. The pressure just forced out what was already inside. You need that pressure. You need this difficult situation. Otherwise, you'll never become more like Jesus. Oh, okay. Sorry, Lord, that I asked for you to take me out of this pressure situation. Actually, that's from my for my own um, good, and for my own growth. So, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer, or what we would have asked for if we knew what He knows. So, and, and, and yeah, we must also not only submit to God's desires in what we pray for, but also God's timing. It, it, sort of towards the end of the parable, oh, I'm at James now, it says, will God keep you know, God will surely quickly answer his elect and give them justice, avenge his elect. But then he says, will God keep putting them off? What, is, what does that mean? What does that imply? That, that implies that sometimes God will put them off. <laughs> sometimes God will delay somewhat. But he won't delay indefinitely when you ask for the right thing. He'll never delay indefinitely. But sometimes he will delay. So, so part of being dependent on God is being dependent on his desires, but also his timing in prayer. Sometimes we ask for the right thing, even with the right motives, but the timing's not quite right. And when God doesn't answer, God's answer is not necessarily a God's not answering is not necessarily a no. Sometimes it's just a wait. Keep asking and wait. You're asking for the right thing. Keep asking, but wait. I, I want to tell you a little story that, that I think um, nicely illustrates this. There was a lady... She, lived, she was born in about 331 after Christ, so way back in North Africa. Her name was Monica. And she was born to sort of moderately wealthy parents near Carthage in North Africa. And a maid who worked for their family 
um, was a Christian, and, and this maid led her to the Lord. So her parents weren't Christians, but this, this maid led her to the Lord. And, um, you know, she grew up as a, as a really passionate Christian. She, she got given in marriage, you know, as, as was typical in those days, in the teenage years, to an older man called, um, I can't even remember his name. But uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't a Christian, uh, you know, and because her parents weren't Christians, they didn't care that he wasn't a Christian, you know, or that she was a Christian. They just gave her in, in marriage to this, this man. And he was a difficult man and, and a bit of a violent man. So he, he actually abused her, but not, not terribly, but it, he did abuse her, which is not nice, you know. And, <laughs> you know, the amazing thing is the testimonies about her is, is just how, as a Christian, she just bore up under this. And she had three children with this guy, three children with this, this man. Um, two of it, and she, she really dedicated herself. Um, I think they were the, all three th- sons, if I'm not mistaken. And, and, and she just, she didn't want her sons to grow up to be like their father. So she really dedicated herself to teaching them the way of Christ, you know, the Christian religion, you know, discipling them. Uh, and two of them rather quickly responded and, and actually became Christians. But there was one, the, the brightest, you know, and most promising of the three, who just didn't want to become a Christian. And, and he, he, he became quite wild, you know, and, and um, corrupt, you know. And, and at the age of 16, she saw what was coming, and she sat him down and had a long talk with him and said, listen, yeah, don't go into that lifestyle of lust and debauchery and recklessness. It's, it's, it's going to ruin your life. Don't do it. And, you know, like many 16-year-olds, he's like, oh, mom, you know, what do you know, you know? If, if you just not be such a, a pestering Christian and, and, and if you just re- renounce your Christian beliefs, we'll get along so much better, you know? What, what, what's your problem? You're just so stuck up, you know? And anyway, at the age of 17, he went off to, I think it was to Rome, to go to university. And now... <laughs> This, this must be any you know, mother's worst nightmare. You, know? you, you, you have um, sort of a loose son you know, in, in, in one of the most vulnerable and reckless times of his life going to one of the worst places in the world, Rome, you know, and a university, you know, out of the house. Now you, now you can't you know, minister to him anymore. You know? <laughs> so, so this guy went off, and, and when, when he was 17 at university, he got into a relationship with an older woman, actually got her pregnant. He was, good, he was a great student. I mean, he did really well in his studies and so on. But, but he, he got this lady pregnant, didn't marry her, but he had this child with, with her. And things went on, and she followed him. This, this mother followed him. She went to Rome, and she, because by that time I think her husband was dead. And, and just by the way, she, she prayed the whole time for him. And not only for him, but for her husband as well, this husband who was abusing her. And before his death, just before his death, her husband actually converted and became a Christian. And as a widow then, she followed this young man everywhere he went, you know. And she would always find him. I mean, um, even when he ran away from home, and she would pray for him. And, and when she was in Carthage, she went to the bishop of Carthage and said, pray with me for my son, you know. And, and she enlisted other people, you know, and, and church leaders to pray with her. And then she went to Rome, and she, she looked up the bishop there and said, come pray with me for my son. And she just didn't give up. And for years and years and years, you know, more, more than 10 years, I, I can't remember the exact amount of time she just kept praying now 10 years is a long time 10 15 years that's a long time she didn't give up she just kept praying for this young man and and he just lived a wild life and he just he learned and the, and the more he learned the more educated he became the more miserable he became and the more empty his life felt 
But he just kept on, you know. And, and, and in, in Rome, when he was, you know, in his, actually in his first year, he actually joined a cult. Um, the Manichaeans, I think it was called, which is a, a sort of a Gnostic cult that actually denies the existence of God. So not only does he go to university and he's living this loose life, but he's now joined a cult, you know. I mean, come on, things can get worse. But this mother just keeps praying, just keeps praying and follows him and, and you know, goes to church in, in Rome and invites him to church and prays for him and he doesn't want to know anything about it, you know. He's just talked to the hand. And, and things go on like that for, for many years. Eventually he goes to Milan, um, and um, he, he starts going to there was a very famous preacher there called Ambrose who was one of the best speakers in the Roman Empire he was apparently quite brilliant in the way that he just spoke and presented the gospel so he started, so his mother followed him to Milan as well and he was actually a professor there so she followed him there and she, because this guy was such a good speaker she managed to get him to go and just to listen to him and this guy really you know touched his heart, and she started praying with this Ambrose for, for her son, and, and eventually this Ambrose guy, this bishop got to know this guy, and because you know, they were sort of on the same level, they connected a bit, and they actually became friends. And, 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 and her mother and Ambrose, uh, his mother and Ambrose were praying for him, and, and, but still he didn't change, and, and, and he, he has a well-known prayer, uh, <laughs> the prayer of chastity, where he says, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> 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 but not yet. <laughs> so things went on for a while, and, but eventually, you know, he became, as, as he's, he grew in his knowledge and everything, he just became more and more miserable. And one day he was walking in the garden just saying, God, am I going to live this meaningless, reckless, indulgent life and, and be stuck, you know, as a slave to my desires and my lusts for the rest of my life? And he was walking in this garden, and he heard a, a child, a little child singing from over the wall, take up and read, take up and read. And he ran into the house and he grabbed the Bible because he felt God was speaking to him and say, saying to him, he must read the Bible. So he, he grabbed the Bible and he just sort of flung it open and it fell open at Romans 13, verse 13. And he read, Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And he prayed and meditated about that and, he, and, and right there his life was changed and he got converted. God saved him. He was clothed in Jesus Christ. First thing he did was he ran to his mom and he said, Mom, Jesus has saved me. And they spent some time together. At the age of 33, I think it was in the late 300, 387, um, he took his mother to a port city where she was going to take a boat back to, to North Africa, to, to, to their hometown. She didn't make it back. He said bye to her. You know, he said, after a very special time together, he said bye to her and she went, but she never made it back. She got sick along the way and she died. This young man, his name was Augustine of Hippo. And he became probably the most significant man during that age. Even secular historians consider him as one of the pillars of Western society. He was the greatest church father and the greatest thinker of his time. If you go to the Kum bookstore in Cresta, you'll find at least two of his books. The Confessions of St. Augustine and the City of God. That 1,600 years after he lived... 
are still being sold in bookstores. He's considered the greatest church father, the greatest man of faith between Paul and the reformers. And in fact, the whole Reformation was built on his theology. Both Luther and Calvin and those guys all went back to St. Augustine to get sound theology from him that the Reformation was built on. Imagine his mother, Monica, did not persist in prayer as she did. I mean, she didn't know what an effect this man was going to have on the world, how he's going to change the world. But she, just in love, persisted in praying for him. I think that's a very encouraging story. So, um, also, so I said that, that uh, persistent pray, uh, uh, dependent prayer is persistent, it's resistant, it's also insistent. Because it knows it's asking for what God wants. When you pray for justice, when you pray for what God wants, not for what you want, out of your own self-centered independence, then you can be insistent. I mean, in, in, the, in, the, in the parable, this, this uh, judge says, you know, in verse 5, you know, you know, even though I don't fear God or, you know, regard people, I'll give this woman what she wants, lest through her constant, continual coming, she wear me out eventually. Lest by, you know, uh, what, what's his word by, um, let me actually read it. He actually says it so well. Yeah, you know, by a constant bothering me. Yeah, uh, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Because she keeps bothering me. Can you see the insistence of, of her pleading? And if we're praying for what God wants, then we can have that same insistence. Isaiah 62 verse 7 says, Give the Lord no rest. Give the Lord no rest until he establishes Jerusalem as a praise in the earth. When you're asking for what God wants, God commands you to pester him. God commands you to bother him. God loves it when we pester him to do what he wants to do. <laughs> right? And we can be insistent. We can have that almost audacious insistence when we know we're praying according to God's will. Okay. But then finally... That kind of prayer is also consistent because that kind of prayer is not only about receiving from God, but primarily actually about relationship with God. In other words, you're not only approaching God when you need. And, and it, it says so, uh, it says, uh, it talks about in the end when, God, when the Lord speaks, he says, Will not God avenge his elect who cry to him day and night? Why do they cry to him day and night? Not only because day and night they want to receive from him, but day and night they want relationship with him. And consistency in our prayer life comes from when we don't only want to receive stuff from God, but when we want relationship with God. When the main thing that we want, the primary thing we want, is God himself, and not only what he can give. Not only what he can give. Um, William Temple, a well-known... Bishop, I think he's an Anglican or something. He, he said, your true religion is revealed by what you do in your solitude. In other words, what do you think about? Where does your mind go when you have nothing else to think about? That is your true religion. That is your true God. And if God is our true God, then our minds, when we have nothing else 
to think about our minds will automatically go towards God in prayer. Right? Now, that's quite convicting, right? Because just for a moment, think, where does your mind go to when you have nothing else to think about? If it goes to, you know, the new job or the new house you want, greed, or it goes to, you know, the man or the woman that you want, or if it goes to whatever else you want, that tells you where your heart really is at. That tells you what your idol is. That tells you what your true God is. That tells you what your true religion is. And if our true religion is God, then our minds will constantly, day and night, wander towards God in prayer. Okay, so we spoke about the the need for persistent prayer and the nature of persistent prayer. Let's just quickly, in closing, talk about the basis of persistent prayer. What gives us the basis and the boldness for such prayer? Okay, um, and and this this parable just hints at a few things, uh, but but very powerful things. You know, if we approach God as judge only, we'll either feel offended if we think that is unjust judge, or we'll feel condemned if we feel that is a just judge. But the point of this parable is that if we want this kind of prayer life, if we want this kind of persistent prayer life, consistent prayer life, we cannot approach. God primarily as judge. We've got to approach him primarily as father. That's why right at the end of the parable it says, when the son of man returns, will he find faith in the earth? In other words, that kind of prayer can only be born out of a place of faith, not in yourself or in your own goodness, as though God is a, a judge, you know, and you can earn the right to come into his presence, but out of a place of faith in the Son of Man, Jesus, and what He did for you. That is the basis, the only basis upon which we can have such a prayer life and approach God, not as judge. Because here's the thing. For all of God, God is judge. And the only way we can approach Him, not only as judge, is if we approach Him through His Son. Because His Son has that Father-Son relationship. Right? Think about, this, think about it this way. None of us as fallen human beings start off being children of God. But Jesus starts off being the Son of God. Right from the start. Okay? You know, my, my father, his name is Johan Swart. I've had a relationship with him all my life because he's my father. Right? Rochelle didn't have a relationship with him all her life. But when Rochelle married me, he also became her father. Can you, can you see that? Can you see what I'm getting to? In exactly the same way as marriage gives you a relationship, can give Rochelle a father-daughter relationship with my father because she's married to me, so adoption by faith in Jesus the Son can give in other words, Rochelle receives the same relationship I have with my father because she is bound to me in covenant. And if through adoption we are bound to Jesus, through faith we are bound to Jesus in covenant, then we get the same relationship that he has with his father. Can you see that? And it's out of that relationship that forms the basis of our boldness to come to God in prayer. 
persistently, consistently, and in safe dependence on Him. And now we can approach Him no longer just as our judge, no longer even primarily as our judge, but primarily as our Father. You see, if we're into religion, we'll always approach God either as a just judge or an unjust judge. But if we, through the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ, come to Him, then we can come in a whole new way. Not primarily as judge. He's still our judge, but He's primarily now our Father because we're in covenant with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. And that gives us the freedom and the boldness to approach Him persistently. And then we approach Him not only because we want stuff from Him, but because we want Him And we have relationship with Him. And we love Him. And we want to spend time with Him. And that is the basis. Now, just, I mentioned this yesterday as well. Just to reinforce that point, you know. And and you can draw, I'm going to use marriage again as an analogy, but you can draw the same, same sort of analogy between marriage and adoption because both are covenants, covenant relationships. Um, Say I was somehow the very, you know, some other genius businessman, you know, really competent, really hardworking, and I earned millions of rands. Okay, unfortunately, that's not true. But, but if it were true, you know, and I was like stinking rich, you know, like a multi-multi-millionaire. Um, and Rochelle marries me. Then all of a sudden, my riches are hers. My riches that I worked for, that I earned through my competence and my hard work, all of a sudden are hers, even though she did not earn it, even though she did not work for it. And exactly the same way, what Jesus worked hard for and earned becomes ours through covenant with Him. We didn't work for it, but it becomes ours because we get into a covenant marriage-like adoption type relationship with Him. And what He worked for is credited to our accounts. That's the gospel. That's the gospel and that's the basis of health, a healthy prayer life. 